Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to Colossians chapter 3. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through the book section by section. We're up to this section, chapter 3, verse 18 today. Now, I have to say, my sermon is usually uh, about 12 to 13 half pages in notes. I know that because I've been writing them for a long time. This week when I finished it, it was 20. So it's going to be a long, no. Um, We're actually just going to cover, I was going to do, you know, uh, wives and husbands, parents and children, slaves and masters. Slaves and masters will be for next week. There's plenty to talk about there, and I didn't want to short shift that section. So we're just going to be on the the family life uh, this morning. Now, I don't know if you, uh, if you felt it during the reading, but our, our text today is actually kind of jarring. If, if you're reading through the book, when you hit this text, there's like a jolt. And I'm not just talking about the, all the culturally out-of-sync stuff here to wives and even slaves, which does catch our attention. I'm talking about two things. First of all, there's a real shift in the letter from kind of theology to practice right here at the beginning of our text. The first half of this letter is all about the preeminence of Christ and his, his cosmic work as, as, as the fullness of God and, and, and the creator of all things, ruler of all dominions and savior, reconciling everything to himself through his work on the cross. And, 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 and Paul just warns everybody not to stray from that to any other false teaching. And then he moves, as you get into chapter 3, to the indwelling presence of Jesus in our lives as we're raised up to new life in him through his resurrection, that we may live these pure lives. And it all sounds beautiful and, and spiritual, this resurrected life. It's all kind of up here. And then suddenly... We get to verse 17 of chapter 3, and he finishes that section saying, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's kind of like, amen. And then, wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey. and It's like, whoa, there is a shift. Imagine this being read out in its original context. In that small church, these new believers, they're meeting in a home or probably kind of the courtyard of a home. And they've been listening to these beautiful theological truths. Some of them were probably spacing out by the time he gets to this part of the letter. And suddenly he's going, wives, husbands, children. Imagine their heads popping up, kind of looking around at each other uncomfortably. It wasn't normal to speak to women and children, and especially slaves, directly. Paul would have had their attention at this point, and he should have ours. He's moved from these cosmic theological realities of Christ's cross work and the resurrection, and he's zoomed right into the center of their domestic life. He shifted from their life in God to their, to their living room, right? To their home life. 
The reconciling of the world right down into the reconciling of their families. And he's saying that this resurrection work of Christ that's brought peace to this chaotic universe actually should bring peace and order right into their families. He's, He's giving them a reordering. He's keeping it real. It's all just pie in the sky, spiritual stuff until it gets to that bitter disagreement that's eating at our marriage or the rebellious heart of my child that just doesn't feel understood and can't stand me. He's getting real. But the most jarring thing here is what's at the center of the reordering and restoration of family life that he's calling for. What is that? What, what's at the center of it here in this text? What's the main idea? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's submission. That is the key principle Paul gives to shape and order all their family relationships. Submission. That's what smacks us in the face all the way through this text. Every person in the text is called to submit. Even the master of the house, by the time you get to 4 verse 1, is told that he's submitting under the master in heaven. Everybody, the the head of the house, the spouses, the children, even the, the household servant are called to submission. They're called to place themselves under the authority of another and be de- in, in a dependent relationship. The, the, and the idea is that as they do this, it, it, as they willingly submit to those God has placed over them, the family will, will kind of be redeemed and, and flourish. Now I have to say, this idea hits us really wrong. I mean, it just does not ring right in our culture because it's, it's, it's subordinistic and it's restraining. You see, everything in our society and culture says flourishing and happiness and fulfillment comes only in the context of, of personal freedom and self-autonomy and independence, being free to be me, true to myself. The boss of me, that's where you'll flourish. Any relationship that would restrain us, that would hinder our autonomy, is is bad for us, right? If you love someone, you should support them in, in their autonomy, in whatever they want, whatever makes them feel good, right? That's the creed that our culture lives and breathes. Individualism, independence. It's the American way. And we've incorporated this kind of belief that just gets in us, we've incorporated it right into our our family life. A good family, we kind of inherently think a good family should be a place where I can be my most liberated self, right? Unrestrained, relaxed, unguarded. It's my home. It's sort of the relational version of uh, being able to walk around in my tidy whities and socks at home, right? I can just be relaxed. I can be myself. It's my house. Sorry for the mental image. 
But it sort of makes the point. Feels great for me, but it's not good for everybody else. And our culture of unrestrained liberation has not been good for families, has it? This coming into our families has been terrible. The American family is a mess, broken. Sometimes we have this sentimental idea that, you know, families are just safe and beautiful places because, hey, it's family. Everybody loves everybody. No, sin in our unrestrained selves has ravished the family so that often it's the place of some of the worst relational destruction and hurt and darkness and chaos. The closest relational spheres can be the most damaging. That's why everybody goes to therapy and blames stuff on their family and what their parents did. People are just trying to survive their unrestrained, free, liberated families. See, you don't want the unrestrained me. I don't want the unrestrained you, right? Because we are wicked hearts. You don't want the unrestrained me till till heaven, maybe, when I'm sanctified completely, right? When it's all done. Then maybe the unrestrained carries good. For now, Paul says, we all need restraints, roles. We need to be willing to submit our lives to God's redeeming order. And he starts here with husbands and wives. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's a very rough start to today's ear, for sure. We kind of squint when we read it, maybe want to go fast. If you're a woman, you definitely notice this. I mean, it just seems so wrong. Men and women are, are equal. This is sexist, right? It's demeaning to women. Clearly, this is, this is out-of-date, patriarchal, Pauline chauvinism that we need to kind of translate with our modern sensibilities to something more palatable. Maybe it should be, you know, husbands or wives, be nice to your husbands. That would fit better. But I think we struggle to hear this because we bring actually a lot of modern baggage to the word submit. Submit is something in our culture that happens, you know, at the end of a wrestling match. It's the loser's position to us. It's something you're made to do because you've lost. It reeks of of oppression and and passivity, maybe, on the woman's side, the wife's side. It means that you are conceding that you are somehow lesser of a person with no strength and dignity. And yes, let me say there has been a lot of what I like to call religious losers, men who have used this text this way to suppress and abuse their wives, to serve their own selfishness. That's happened. It's happened in the church. It's happened outside the church, by the way. Whole cultures have embraced this kind of chauvinism, submission as a platform for oppression. So offense and a certain reticence to this is understandable. It's very real. 
But that is not what Paul means by this word. That's not how he's using the word submit at all. It's not about oppression and weakness and dominance. The word submit here can can simply be translated to order under. God has, has a relational order for marriage. The idea is that the wife should order her life under her husband's godly leadership. That's why it's talked about submission is, is as in fitting in the Lord. This is God's plan for the two of them to have this ordered relationship that, that is fitting in him. And that is and that's strong for the task of family life. First, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul roots this idea in creation order. When God made men and women equally in his image, with equal dignity and and value, he designed it so that when they came together in marriage, the husband husband should be the head of the wife, and she should embrace his godly leadership as the term there, as a helper, his helper, with her complementary gifts, working with his so the two can be strong, to raise the family. To do his kingdom work, ultimately his gospel work. This is the order, the very Genesis fabric of marriage. The wife is to be a, a willing helper. That's, that, that's the kind of submitting he's talking about. And her role as substitute and helper is anything but passive and weak. Let me ask you this. Who in the Old Testament is called the helper the most? God the Father. Read the Psalms. He's the help in time of need. He's the helper throughout. It's a pretty hefty person to share the title helper with. God the Father. Who in the New Testament is called the helper the most? The Holy Spirit who comes alongside as the helper The two great members of the triune Godhead are helpers. Are they weak? Are they oppressed? No, they are all powerful, aren't they? This is what makes them great help, by the way. They have strength and power we don't possess, so they can help us, right? That's what makes somebody a great helper. They have gifts and powers and strengths you don't have. That's the nature of the wife's submission in Scripture. She is to be her husband's helper, bringing her strength and power, strength and powers he doesn't have to work alongside him in a task that's bigger than him, that he can't do by himself. And by the way, who's the the great submitter in Scripture? Jesus, that's what Philippians 2 read, right? Submitted his life even unto death. He is the great submitter. So you have in the Godhead the helpers and the submitters, the very roles that the wife is called to. And uh, it's anything but weak. And you know, uh, we don't only know this truth of the strength of a godly helper wife. We don't only know this from Scripture. Many of us know this in our own experience. 
Maybe this is uh, when you, you see this in your parents' marriage or maybe your own. My kids who know mom and dad embrace God's order for marriage know that Trisha, my wife, is not weak or passive or lesser than dad in any way, believe me. I don't think the thought has ever entered their head. In fact, when they need help, who are they probably going to first? Especially with math homework, or just about any homework, or something medical, or something relational, just about anything. Mom! That's who they're going to. They have watched her all their lives run our household of nine children and five goats and one horse and one pig and two dogs and multiple chickens and do it all. And recently they've watched her start and build and run a clinic for drug-affected babies and their mothers that has a multi-million dollar budget and over 40 full-time employees. Yet she embraces her role as submitter helper to me. So we must dump our cultural baggage that we've tied to this word submission. Wives, you are called to embrace your husband's leadership in submission. Strong, biblical submission. And again, note that it says, as is fitting in the Lord. You don't follow him if he's leading you into immorality. You don't follow him in sin. You don't follow him if he's abusing your family or you. That's when you use your strength to correct him. You're a helper. And sometimes sometimes you gotta help him get it right. Sometimes you gotta help him repent. You gotta call him out. And to not do so in the name of being a loving, submissive wife is to buy into the culture's view of submission and to fail as a helper. Now, to be, to be real, at, at a functional level, there, are, there, there will be times when the role as submitter means you must restrain your strength and freedom. Perhaps the two of you have prayed about something, some wisdom issue that, that you're wrestling with, what to do. Maybe it's your children's schooling or it's your financial situation or it's a family relational issue and you're not sure. Maybe you don't quite see eye to eye. And you're called ultimately to follow his lead, to submit to his godly leadership as he strives to do that. And it's not easy. It takes some trust and some humility. I have to say, most of the time, my, my wife is very glad when it comes to these tough decisions that the responsibility is ultimately on my shoulders because neither of us, of us is totally sure what to do. But she says, okay, we've prayed about it. We've discussed it. It's on you. Make the decision. And I'm sure that's hard at times because I can make mistakes. But she helps me in my role. She gives me her advice, and she encourages me to lead. And that brings us to the other side of the coin. Husbands. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Nowhere in the Bible does it command husbands to make their wives submit. It's not your job. 
No, you're to love your wives. And wives, note that, that you're not, that this text is first and foremost not calling you to submit to your husband's authority, but to his love. Do you see this? And Paul's not talking about romantic love here. He's talking agape love. He's talking sacrificial love. In the parallel uh, passage in, in Ephesians 5, where you see this same call to submission, Ephesians 5, 24 and 25, it says, husbands, after it's called the wives to submit to them, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You're supposed to give your life to serve your wife for her blessing, for her good, for her sanctification. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul says um, something very similar. If I can find 1 Corinthians 13, I think I lost. Here it is. This is how he describes the love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is, this love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not assist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It bears all things. See, husbands, how are you doing with this kind of love? pretty high standard to love your wife like Jesus loves his church. And note the one negative here. And don't be harsh. All the things Paul could have warned them to not be, he says, husbands, don't be harsh. I think he says that because he knows men. He knows that the tendency, if I come home from work tired, suddenly I'm, I'm impatient, my answers are short and distant, I'm, I'm grumpy, especially if I'm hungry. I didn't speak rude to anybody the whole day while I was at work, but now I'm home, I've kicked my shoes off, and I'm the unrestrained me, and I am a jerk. just my authentic self and it's harsh and it cannot coincide with loving service there's no such thing as harsh love love is patient it's kind it's gentle so here's the question for you husbands are you making your wife's job of submission easy and joyful by serving her in sacrifice by restraining your selfishness and putting her needs before your own? And wives, are you making your husband's sacrificial service a, a joyous task as you strive to follow his leadership and work together with him for the gospel good of your family? You see, it's as we submit within these restraints of sacrifice and submission, rather than demand our personal freedom, that our, our marriages will prosper and, and flourish. 
then it will be pleasing to the Lord. It'll be beautiful before him. Okay, children, those who are left in here, kids, teenagers, I think all the littlest ones have gone. I'm done lecturing your parents. And now it's, uh, now it's your turn. Verse 20, Paul turns his attention to the parents and the children relationship, and he says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, kids, I know that's not new. I should maybe say young adults, since that's mostly who's left in the room. And children, you, you've, you've heard this idea before. It's the question you always have, though. What's the question you're going to have about this? What's the question kids always ask? Why? It's a good question. My kids ask the question, why, a lot. You know, you give them a bedtime, doesn't matter, 8.30, 10.30. It's like, why? My friends get to stay up later. You say, don't swim until, you know, 20 minutes after you eat. Why? It's because you'll die. (laughs) Everybody knows that. You say, don't stop, stomp on your sister's head. And they're like, why? Because you're going to dent the floor. (laughs) Don't jump on the trampoline with dog poop on your feet. I've said this. (laughs) Why? Because it's just gross. Why? That is the question. Why obey your parents? It's a very good question. Well, let me suggest the main reason that's given throughout the Bible. Because it's good for you. It's for your own good. The obedience commanded here is not for the sake of your parents, believe it or not. You're not supposed to obey them so that they can have an easy life and they can tell you, you know, to get their get coffee and you know, do that chore and do that and mow the lawn and make their life easy. That's not what it's about, believe it or not. It's actually for you. The whole context of submission here is one where God calls us to submit to servant leaders, leaders who are responsible for our care, leaders who are to serve us and to bless our lives. And this idea that your obedience is for your own good goes all the way back to the fifth commandment. You know, there's the Ten Commandments. You know, the fifth commandment, that's the one that says, honor your father and mother. Why? What's the, honor your father and mother that? What does it say? That you may live long in the land. So you may live long. You may have a good life, good long life. You see, God has re- arranged things in his divine order so that we may all, so that we all have these people in our life called parents who love us more than anybody. They can't help it. Your parents just love you, kids. You were so cute when you were a baby. They carried you everywhere, changed your diaper, taught you to smile and walk and talk and watched you grow. So even if now you're kind of a snotty, bratty jerk, they still love you. It's just in them. Nobody else may like you, but they love you. And God has given 
them, these people that can't help but love you, wisdom and experience and years you don't have. They are ahead of you in life so they can guide you and serve you and restrain you when you're being dumb. For your good. That you may live long in the land. That you may prosper and, and flourish. Think about this dynamic for a minute, how this works. They're ahead of you. They've been there before. They've done that. That thing that you're thinking about, they've probably been there many times. And they can guide you because they're ahead of you. Now think, I just want you to think, young people, maybe you're teenagers. Um, think about a, a three or four-year-old in the nursery. Think about how far ahead of them you are in life. This is why you can babysit them, right? And you can help them not run out in the street after ball, because you know you've been there. You can help them not jump right into the pool when they don't know how to swim. Because you know that's bad. That'll help them not to do that. You can help them not eat the free candy on the ground. Because you know. It would be good for them to listen to you, right? And you don't even love them. You're just babysitting. You're getting paid. But it would be good for them to listen to you. It's a simple dynamic. Well, your parents have that kind of experience on you in spades. They're so old. They do know a lot of stuff that you don't just because they've been there before you. And God gave them to you to lovingly serve you to help you do well. And by the way, parents, it's this dynamic, this, this loving service of our children that's behind the warning to, to dads primarily uh, as leaders of the family in verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Parents, dads especially, we, we provoke, that is some texts maybe say exasperate our children, discourage them when we forget that we are serving them. When we parent out of selfishness rather than service, because we're just being our liberated selves. When I consistently restrict my kids from uh, things just to make my life easier, right? They want to go to the mall, and I'm like, you can't go. Do you know what kind of people are there? The truth is I just don't want to drive them. And they know it. Or I change rules randomly to suit my convenience. Or when I angrily bark a command because I had a bad day, not because I care for them. Or when I neglect to give them restraints for their good because I'm being lazy. Do whatever you want, just don't interrupt me during the game. When I set up certain rules about how they are to dress or act just for appearance sake, to make myself look good to others. When I constantly answer, because I said so, because I don't want to take any time to listen to them and to teach them, I just want to get back to my TV show. Over time, this will make your kids hate your parenting. 
It will build resentment and anger and rebellion because they know it's not serving them. It's not about them. It's not about their flourishing. It's about your freedom. And it will make them easy prey for the lie of the world that life is all about their freedom and autonomy and serving themselves. That they just need to follow their hearts and do what feels right. Life will be good and they'll be fulfilled. It sounds very true under harsh, distant, selfish parenting. That sounds so true to a discouraged teenager who never feels listened to or engaged with. It's a lie. But to an exasperated child, it sounds like the truth. And here's the thing to remember, children and teenagers. God knows that even though your parents are sinners just like you, and they always don't always get things right, and that they can be selfish, He knows in the end that nobody loves you and knows you and cares for you like them and he gave them to you for your good it will be as you obey them and restrain your freedom that you will flourish obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord just let me say in in application here parents here's a question for you to go home with What is one thing you could change in your parenting that would make it easier for your children to obey? What is one thing you could change that might make it easier for them? That would be a good thing to think about, discuss with your spouse. Children, here's a question. What is one thing you could change in your behavior towards your parents that will make it easier for them to guide you and help you? If you want to please the Lord today, you might want to contemplate that. If you want to freak your parents out, kids, this week, come to them and say, Mom and Dad, this is the change I've decided to make in my life to better honor and obey you. Maybe it's something you want to confess. Maybe it's something you want to be held accountable to. Maybe it's about a change in attitude in your heart. Okay, so we've uh, seen that throughout this text, there is this subordinistic principle to the flourishing Christian life. God, as he redeems and repairs the disintegration of society and of families to help us flourish, doesn't call us to liberation from restraints. He doesn't call us to grasp tightly our our personal freedom and be true to ourselves no matter what. He actually calls us to submit our lives to whoever he has placed over us to embrace not liberation, but dependence on another. This will be the sphere of relational fulfillment and happiness in the Christian life, submitting our lives in dependence. Of course, this only makes sense because those he calls us to submit to, he calls to be for our good. 
wives submit to your husbands only makes sense along and husbands love your wives. Children obey your parents only makes sense along fathers. Don't exasperate your children. Be for their good. The fulfillment of, of each side of this relationship is dependent on the other. They work together. And this is fitting in the Lord. It's in harmony with who he is. That's the idea. Why is this in harmony with who he is? Why is this so fitting to who the Lord is? Submitting and loving. Because it's the shape of the gospel, isn't it? Christ has come for our good as our Savior, to save us, to forgive us, to give us life. And what are we to do? How are do we respond to this Savior who has come for our good? We're to submit our lives to him as Lord. We are to put ourselves under his authority, his good authority. It doesn't work to say, I want Jesus' salvation, isn't this wonderful? But I just want to stay independent I won't submit. I need my autonomy. Got to be true to myself. No, he is our Savior by being our Lord. That's how his salvation comes to us as we submit to him in dependence and rely fully on him. This is the gospel that the Colossians received. This is the gospel that we received. And this is how we live out the Christian life right into our families. And it's always for our good. And we really can only do it in total dependence on Christ himself, the great submitter. Let's pray. Father, these words are challenging, whether you're a kid or whether you're a parent, whether you're a husband or whether you're a wife. Lord, we pray that you would, you would work in all our hearts to first and foremost submit to you, to receive your good salvation by coming under your lordship, and then give us the strength by your spirit to willingly submit to those you have placed over us for our good. May we embrace these roles because it's fitting and pleasing to you. Amen.